0: Flannel graph comes to your mind when you hear that word. If you're like me growing up in Sunday school, often taught many Bible stories through the use of flannel graph. Maybe we have teachers in here who used flannel graph to teach children Bible stories. Remember growing up the classic blue fabric board with a seemingly infinite number of Bible characters and stories. Do you remember what flannel graph Jesus looked like? I mean, maybe even if you didn't grow up with flannel graph, you remember the visual aids that teachers would use in teaching children about Jesus. You remember what he looked like according to our children's stories? Of course, he was white, always. Probably with a medium to dark brown beard. He always wore a robe that was the color white that had some magical detergent that ensured that Jesus' robe would never get dusty or dirty, ever, right? And especially in the children's visual aids, do you remember that Jesus was normally ripped, like really muscular? In fact, if you listen to the description, it kind of sounds like, just kidding. You know, I doubt that any of us have had really tragic consequences that have occurred Because the picture of Jesus that we might have in our minds as a child doesn't exactly look like Jesus from the New Testament. He was Jewish, folks. He grew up in dusty Palestine and lived on a Mediterranean diet. Our picture of Jesus from children's stories probably didn't look like the real Jesus. Like I said, there probably aren't a lot of tragic consequences that you and I face because the picture of Jesus that we hold in our minds of his physical appearance, doesn't look exactly what the New Testament Jesus probably looked like. But you know, in our own society and in our lives, oftentimes we paint a portrait of Jesus that looks very different than what the Jesus of the New Testament was, and it comes with much more dire consequences. I mean, you look in our culture and you see the different pictures of Jesus that people put out there. One that recently has come to light is represented by the governor of Georgia. I don't know if you've heard about this in the last few weeks. The state of Georgia, its legislation is arguing over a number of discrimination laws. And this is what the governor of Georgia, Nathan Deal, has to say about his view of Jesus as it relates to homosexual marriage. Governor Deal says, what the New Testament teaches us is that Jesus reached out to those who were considered the outcast. The one that did not conform to the religious society's view of the world. We don't have a belief in my way of looking at religion that says we have to discriminate against anybody. If you were to apply those standards to the teaching of Jesus, I don't think they fit. Perhaps even clearer the words of former President Jimmy Carter in an interview last summer. He says, I think Jesus would encourage any love affair if it was honest and sincere and was not damaging to anyone else. I don't see that gay marriage damages anyone else. So these men who identify as Jesus' followers have a picture of Jesus that at least in part is right. I mean, is it true that we see Jesus of the New Testament compassionate, welcoming all people towards him no matter their background, no matter the sin struggle, he welcomes them all to himself. But these men seem to welcome that portrait of Jesus while ignoring some very other important aspects of Jesus that we find in the New Testament. A Jesus, when faced with sexual immorality, you remember the story in John 8, of the woman caught in adultery, and what does he say to her? Your sins are forgiven. But then he says, go and sin no more. This is a Jesus of holiness, who upholds the Old Testament and God's view of such things as homosexuality. So my question for these men would be, what Jesus do you worship? Is it the Jesus of our own making, the Jesus that conforms to our culture, or is it the Jesus of the New Testament? But the problem isn't limited to them. I fear that in my own life often, the Jesus I claim to worship is really a Jesus of my own making, not the Jesus of the New Testament. I like a Jesus that lines up a little more closely with my own values. I maybe like to pick and choose certain aspects and teachings about Jesus that fit my lifestyle, while maybe ignoring the portraits of Christ that I don't like quite as much. This is a Jesus who might ask me to make marginal changes in my own life, but who would never ask me to do anything too drastic. I mean, I'm a busy student. I work at a church. Seriously? Jesus understands if work and school are kind of the center of my life. That whole like discipleship thing, sharing the gospel. He understands why that's a little peripheral. He's okay with that. This Jesus that sometimes I have in my mind, his eternal purpose for me from ages past is that I would be comfortable least often that's the Jesus that I have in my mind. Does the Jesus that I claim to worship, the Jesus of the Gospels, does he come out in the way I live? Or if an observer were to look at my life from the outside, how would he describe the Lord that I claim to worship? Would he bear any resemblance to the Christ of the New Testament? One professor of religion at Boston University said this. He said, Christians traditionally, as they've shaped Jesus, have been worried about getting it wrong including the Puritans. But Americans today are not so worried. There isn't a sense that this is a life and death matter, that you don't want to mess with divinity. There's a freedom and even a playfulness that Americans have. The flexibility of our Jesus is unprecedented. And so right at the outset, so that we know where we're going this morning in the text, the challenge to myself, challenge to us this morning To examine our lives and to worship the real Jesus. To worship the real Jesus. Not the Jesus of our own making. Not the Jesus that conforms to cultural values around us. Not the Jesus that makes us comfortable. Not the Jesus where we get to pick and choose what he's like, the stories that we like about him from the New Testament while ignoring others. But that you and I would grasp and worship the true, real Jesus of the Gospels. And what we'll find as we look at Matthew 21 today is we find that very contrast. As we've already read, the crowds who worship Jesus, their conception of who He is is actually quite different from what Jesus teaches about Himself. There's a sharp contrast between the two, between the way the crowds view this Christ and between what Christ says about Himself. And this conflict indeed has tragic consequences because ultimately it leads to Jesus Death. There are consequences when we get Jesus wrong. The passage is rather short this morning. If you wouldn't mind, maybe we can read it again together from Matthew 21, first eleven verses. Something familiar familiar with Palm Sunday. Matthew records now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and came to Bethphage. And when he entered Jerusalem the whole city was stirred up saying, "Who is this?" And the crowd said, "This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee." So again as we read as we work through this text this morning, what we're going to find is the conception of Jesus that the crowds had is very different from how Jesus teaches about himself. So first of all, how did the crowds see Jesus? What's the picture we get? The crowds very clearly see Christ as a nationalistic Messiah King. One who's coming to vanquish Rome, to establish a political kingdom, to give them freedom. This is how they view Jesus. And, spoiler alert, in many ways they're actually right. Their picture is just incomplete. Because if we look at the way that Matthew sets the scene for us, If we look at the way that the crowds respond to Jesus, we see indeed he is portrayed as a king. In verse 1, Matthew is the only Gospel writer to mention the Mount of Olives. Why is that? Because in Zechariah 14 in the Old Testament, the Mount of Olives is associated with this Messiah King. There he's portrayed as one who is involved in end time war. This is what they would have expected. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus makes a rather odd request. Sometimes we hear it so much it doesn't strike us how strange it actually sounds. That Jesus tells his disciples to go into a town and take a colt, a baby donkey, and its mother. But what's even stranger than that is, what does Jesus say to his disciples? That they are to tell those who question what they're doing. The Lord has need of them. That's a rather odd saying. Because Matthew doesn't qualify that. Lord of what? That's the point. You don't have to qualify it. In this very clear way, Matthew is saying Jesus is Lord of everything, even down to this baby donkey and his mother. The Lord of all needs them. And Matthew's readers would have understood this is what kings do. Kings who have true authority, who rule, whenever they need someone's private property for their own use, that's just part of their right. It's kind of like when you and I watch shows and we see the FBI agents or the policemen and they flash their badge to someone when they're in a high-speed chase. And they make someone get out of their car so they can take it for their own use. Right? You know what I'm talking about? It's a similar idea. It's a symbol of authority, of power, of control. This donkey actually belongs to me. I am Lord of all. But it's not just that that we get the picture that Jesus is king. I mean, look at the very quote that Matthew gives from, again, the book of Zechariah in chapter 9. Jesus very clearly is fulfilling this prophecy of one who's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, but what does Zechariah say about this person? He says, behold your king. Jesus in no uncertain terms is declaring himself as the king. But then we look at how the crowds respond to Jesus. They agree with this. They're capturing the imagery that this man, whoever this is, is entering into Jerusalem as the messianic king. That's why they spread their cloaks in front of Jesus. That's why they cut down branches from trees, what John will identify for us as palm branches, and lay them in Jesus' path. And what this picture is, what they would have understood it, is this is what you did for a general when he came back from war and was victorious. This is the picture of a king of successful conquest. This is what they're lifting him up as. And as they go alongside him, they shout the words from Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. At this time in Israel's history, Hosanna is probably just a generic term of praise, kind of like how we often use the word hallelujah. But that phrase, the son of David, David, the great king of Israel, to whom God had promised that his kingdom would have no ends, that his throne would last forever, that from him would come an eternal king. They recognize this is the one. Jesus is our king. The way that Matthew sets the scene is the crowds are going behind before him as Jesus' own royal entourage. He is coming as an exalted ruler. And the way the city reacts in verse 10 where Matthew writes that it was stirred is probably like the greatest understatement ever. The word that's used for stirred is used of earthquakes and apocalyptic upheavals, as some have noted. It might be better translated like wild with excitement. Or Jerusalem was thrown into commotion at the coming of this man. In other words, Jerusalem was rocked because of the coming of the King. They got that. And again, in part, this picture that the crowds have that Jesus is the messianic king is true. And it came really easy to them. But I don't know about you. I I think that in my own life, this picture that Jesus is actually a king, that comes harder for me sometimes. Sometimes that's a picture of Christ I'd rather not see. You see, at times, I would rather see Christ as my great cosmic friend And not really acknowledge him as king. The Christ of the New Testament, he ministers grace, right? He rescues me from death and judgment and hell. He's the one who wants me to have joy, he is my joy. And yet, we can't ignore this truth as well that Jesus, at the same time, is a king who demands allegiance in every area of our lives. Sometimes that's harder for us to recognize. He's a king who demands that we show devotion to him, not just in the gathered worship of the church, but it's a king whose rule extends over the entire universe and indeed into every single aspect of our lives so that when we go from here in our own conversation and what we set before our eyes and our own souls and hearts and our own priorities, Jesus demands devotion in every single area. Sometimes I like the picture of a Jesus As he says, of a spirit who comes alongside me to minister grace. That's the picture of the Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus also demands that as a king that we fall down and worship at his feet. It's easy to remember the admonition of Jesus to come unto him. All of us who are weak and heavy laden because what? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You'll find rest for your souls. But how often do we forget the Jesus who also said, take up your cross and follow me? The Jesus who demands complete and total devotion. Maybe this is a picture of Jesus that we have a harder time recognizing. But indeed, that is who the true Jesus of the New Testament is. So then, in some sense, was the crowd's assessment of Jesus correct? Was he a king? Absolutely. But here's the problem. The crowd saw Jesus as a king, but that picture is Tragically, incomplete. And what we're going to see is that incomplete knowledge leads to drastic consequences. And you get this picture because what do the crowds respond when, the, when those in the city ask, Who is this person? Who is this Jesus? What do they say? Oh, he's, he's the prophet. Not the Son of God. Not the Savior of the world. Not Jesus, the one who has come to save us from our sins. No, Call him the prophet. Serious understatement. They wanted a king who would rescue them from Rome, but not one that would rescue them from their sins. They missed it. They wanted an earthly kingdom. They wanted political salvation. But they didn't want one who would atone for their sins. Someone who would rescue them from, their self, from themselves. Incomplete knowledge of Jesus leads to them rejecting Him just a few days later. Incomplete knowledge of a person can lead to some pretty bad consequences. Take, for instance, one example that's pretty familiar to us Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader. Throughout the movies of the first Star Wars, what's the picture of Luke fighting against the Empire and its symbol of darkness and power in many ways? Who is that? Darth Vader, of course. And, of course, in the final movie, what happens? You know what's coming the whole time. When Luke and Darth Vader go to blows, Luke bent on destroying this one who is symbolic of everything he stands against. And, of course, what happens? There's one crucial piece of information that he doesn't know about this man. What is it? It's his dad, right? Does that change the relationship a little bit? Does that change from Luke wanting to run his dad through with a lightsaber to rather Darth Vader dying in Luke's arms while Luke cradles his head because it's his dad. That's a rather silly illustration, right? But you understand now if you don't have complete knowledge of someone, it really changes things. And that actually is the picture we get here. Yeah, the crowds, they get about half the story right. But Jesus is not only a king, he's also the suffering servant. And precisely, again, because they neglected, because they were blind to the truth, that Jesus came to die as a sacrificial lamb. Some of the same people, some of the same people who now praise Jesus with these praises, in just a few short days, that Friday will scream for his execution. That's what happens when their picture of Jesus didn't match up with the true nature of who Jesus actually said he was. So one commentator has said, they seek deliverance in victory, not in the way Jesus intends. As someone else has pointed out, it seems as if the crowds love their idea of kingdom and glory and power more than they actually love Jesus. They fail to worship the real Jesus. Their Jesus, the one that conformed to their desires, didn't match up with who Jesus actually said he was. And even if we go through and see the hints in this passage, we'll find that Jesus identifies Himself as a humble, meek servant. He is the Messiah. He's that man of sorrows who lays down His life for the sins of the world. And His primary mission at this time, as He makes clear, is not to deliver from a political kingdom, but to deliver from the power of sin and death. See, again, look again at what Matthew quotes from Zechariah. He calls him a king, yes. But what does he say this king is like? He is humble. Maybe your translation says meek or gentle. This is not a warrior king. This is not a military general. This is why, again, in just a few short days, Jesus will tell Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would be fighting but rather he's a king of peace. You might be able to understand why this didn't exactly go over too well with the crowds. I mean, in this political season, the super PACs aren't exactly crying out for their candidates. Look at blank how humble he is, right? Or look at this person, how gentle and peaceful she is. It's not the kind of ruler we want. This is why the crowds rejected him. But Zechariah identifies him as one who is humble. I mean, it's sometimes easy to miss. Look at how Jesus enters in. He doesn't enter in on a war horse, as a general would do in wartime. He enters in on a donkey. And not just that, a baby donkey. I don't know if you've ever seen a baby donkey. They are quite cute. You'd be surprised. But they definitely don't exude majesty and power. In fact, this, this donkey has a mom. Like You could ride her, but instead it's this probably rather comical and certainly humble scene. Jesus rides in on this baby donkey who's so young that he still has to have his mom walk beside him so he doesn't freak out at the crowd shouting at Jesus. This isn't a picture of a majestic militaristic general. He's humble. The donkey is what a king would ride in times of peace. He comes in war not against Rome, but against the grave. This is the Jesus who's actually being portrayed. The crowds miss the speeches that Matthew records very closely in the preceding chapters, just before uh, chapter 21, where he says he will suffer and die where he tells James and John about the cup of suffering that he's about to drink. This is the Jesus that we see here. This is the Jesus who told those same two disciples that the greatest measure of how great, how big you are, is how much of a servant you are. Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But the crowds have missed that. So they got half the picture right. Jesus is a king. But they missed that He was also a Messiah. They missed the picture here that as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, it wasn't just about a palm branch, the symbol of military might, of celebration, of kingship. They refused to associate that with that crown of thorns, the symbol of suffering and of sacrifice and of atonement. Those two pictures wouldn't go together in their minds. And because they couldn't reconcile them, again, it leads to Jesus' death. The tragic consequences of when we deny who the Jesus of the New Testament actually is, because they failed to worship the true, real Jesus. Their conception of Jesus was partially right, but it wasn't complete. They failed to worship the real Jesus. Maybe for some of us, it's this very picture that's hard for us. Maybe the picture that Jesus is indeed a gentle, humble, sacrificial servant. Maybe that's the one that at times offends us. I think at times what we can observe in our culture is that the Jesus that we've pictured in our own minds looks a whole lot more American than that. We force Jesus into the mold of consumerism. The Jesus of the American dream. The Jesus who understands and even approves of the fact that the accumulation of wealth is at the very center of my life. Even if it takes me neglecting or stepping on others to get there. Again, the Jesus who gave his life to disciple the men around him and then to die for them. That's the Jesus we say we worship, but maybe the Jesus of our minds is a little different. Because perhaps that whole investing in other people's lives, discipleship, sharing the gospel, that's kind of on the outsides of our our vision. Who is the Jesus that we worship? We want a Jesus who endorses and loves our own materialism. And yet this is a Jesus who lived in poverty, who says the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head, who has become poor, that you and I might become spiritually rich. In fact, when we look at the Jesus of the New Testament, the most American person that Jesus ever ran into was probably who we know as the rich young ruler. The one who very clearly worshipped his possessions, and what does Jesus say to him? Sell everything that you have, give to the poor and come and follow me. Am I saying that that's exactly what Jesus is asking every single one of us to do this morning? No. But what I am saying is, do the priorities of our lives reflect that we worship that Jesus who values the first commandment of loving God and neighbor over that accumulation of stuff? We worship the real Jesus. We worship the Jesus of the American dream or the Jesus of the New Testament. Or are there other areas in our lives where the Jesus that we're proven to worship actually looks quite different from the Christ of the Gospels? If an outsider were to observe your life, my life, for any length of time and deduce from the values, from the priorities that we have, they were to try to figure out what is the Jesus that this person worships? What is he like? What does he value? What does he love? Would their answer bear any resemblance to the Jesus of the Gospels? Have you and I subconsciously created in our own minds a quote-unquote Jesus 2.0 for ourselves? One that fits our own values and loves a little bit better. The one that can excuse our faults. The one that rather, to whom, rather than us conforming to his values, his priorities, we want him to conform to ours. I know for me, when I was growing up, the church that uh, we grew up in, Jesus was rather forced into the mold of a Pharisee, which is rather ironic if you think about it. That Jesus actually loved us more, the Jesus that we were taught to worship, if you wore the right stuff, listened to the right stuff, attended church enough, and a whole host of other do's and don'ts. Jesus was far less interested in you actually loving someone sacrificially, less concerned about discipleship, he was much more concerned about how you performed or how you conformed to a set of standards. That's the Jesus, in some ways, I worshipped, even as a child. And yet the Jesus of the New Testament slams the Pharisees of empty religion who conformed to a set of standards while widows and orphans starved who condemned them for their hypocrisy because they spurned the people right around them and they didn't display proper love towards God. Again, the first and second greatest commandments. Jesus, when He gave His final words to His disciples before He ascended into heaven, His his final admonition to them was not, don't go to a movie theater, It was, go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them what I've taught you. Baptize them. This is Jesus' last command. And yet I fear that maybe sometimes, maybe this is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus who was called friend of sinners. The Jesus who reached around to the social outcasts, indeed, around him. To those who were ignored by society. Who even the religious leaders wouldn't touch. And show them gospel love. Does our life reflect that type of Jesus? Or does the Jesus in my life celebrate cliques? Celebrate tight social circles where certain people are just not welcome? We worship the real Jesus. Now it's kind of heavy, right? So what happens when this vision of who I have of Jesus in my mind, that that picture, that portrait I paint in my mind of Christ, What happens when that aligns with the Jesus of the New Testament? What what do our lives look like? And I think we have to look no further than the apostles themselves. Who after Jesus' resurrection, it took them a while, but they got it. They got the idea that the palm branch, the military king, and the crown of thorns, the suffering sacrificial lamb, that those pictures actually go together. And what happened? God used them to change the world when their worship of Jesus actually aligned with who Jesus said he was, God used them to turn the world upside down. And so I wonder for you and I, when we check our lives, when we look at our priorities, we compare them with the picture of Jesus. When we check ourselves against the Jesus of our own hearts, and we compare him to the Jesus of the New Testament, and those two things come together in perfect alignment, what will God do through us? What will God do in our church through the proper worship of Christ in our own lives, in our communities? May we worship the real Jesus. Maybe today we should stop and take a breath and evaluate our own lives. Do we worship the Jesus of the New Testament or a Jesus of our own making? What would others say about, about that? If the crowds in Jerusalem were to ask you, The very question that they asked 2,000 years ago Who is this? How would you answer? How would your life answer? So the question is Will you worship the real Jesus today?